Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon. I don't know. Should I say good? I'll just say afternoon. Now, I'm not even going to say welcome, everyone. It is Sunday, June the 5th, 2022. It is currently 2.16 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas, where it's not a good afternoon. It has not been a good morning. It's not a good afternoon. I'm concerned it's not going to be a good evening. And yes, that may be a little overdramatic, but man, things have not gone the way I had planned. Let me tell you a story. It all started about 10.05 this morning. I was standing behind the pulpit at Victory Baptist Church. I told everyone to open up their Bibles to the book of Jude because we were going to continue what we've been working on now for a considerable amount of time. I'm like, okay, we're going to do this. But I thought I would do a kind of a, a new introduction and try to connect the book of Jude, which is trying to encourage believers to contend for the faith. I was going to try to connect that encouragement. Hey, everyone that Jude was writing to contend for the faith and try to connect that with a modern example where Christians today need to be motivated to contend for the faith. So we talked about the book, Jesus Calling. I thought that was okay, may have taken a little bit too much time, but I thought it was a good idea, right? To show you, hey, just as the people in Jude's day needed to be encouraged to contend for the faith, you need to be challenged to contend for the faith. And here's an example of something that has crept into the church unawares, and we need to discuss it, talk about it, and you need to be challenged to stand up against it. So I, I thought it was relevant. I thought it was a good idea. And 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 in my mind, it was always, it was going to work really good. I was going to do that and then flow right back into our outline, flow right back into the teaching of the book. I mean, I thought it was going to be brilliant. I thought by the time I was done, people were like, I, you know, I really like the fact that you, you gave me a modern example. It really did challenge me to take the book of Jude more serious. I thought I was going to get something positive from it. But that all started at 10.05. By 11 a.m., <laughs> by 11 a.m., I, I, I was sweating. My face, I felt like it was like 10, uh, you know, I don't know, 10, 100 shades of red. I don't even know the right way to describe it. I felt like I was burning up inside. I was embarrassed. I was humiliated. I was frustrated because everything went wrong. It's like you're driving a car and you lose control of the car. You just lose control. And it just, it feels like it takes 30 minutes to get it back under control. And I, I'm like, I'm through the fence. I hit a cow. I, I just the tires explode. The windows bust out. It's just, it's, and then, but there was no getting back on the road. In fact, the car is still left in a field somewhere broken and not not literally I'm using this as an illustration obviously everyone understands that but that that's how bad it felt I was just humiliated and was like oh in fact literally I mean the second I hit stop on the sermon as soon as I stopped it I I immediately grabbed my iPad I was like find delete 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 from every web delete from every podcast app just delete 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 so that Sunday school hour will never be heard by anyone <laughs> Because it was so bad. It, w it just went so 
wrong. And I was getting a feeling that things were not quite going right. Now, if you've ever been a public speaker, you know, you, you probably understand this. Now, the problem with what I'm about to say is sometimes it's the perception that the speaker has, which may not be an accurate it may not be an accurate understanding of what's clearly taking place. But for the last couple of weeks in Jude, if you've listened to the sermons, you've noticed that I've kind of gotten a little frustrated because I feel like that every time I'm like, okay, guys, the book of Jude, there's a very critical part here. I want to make sure you understand, right? Okay, what is Jude trying to do? He's trying to get the people to contend for the faith. How does he go about doing it? What's the first thing he attempts to do to, to get to encourage them to contend for the faith? He gives them reminders. Now, and what many people do, and you'll see this in many commentaries, is, and in fact, you'll just notice this if you have uh, your Bibles open to Jude. I know I'm speaking like this, like everyone listening to me knows the book. Um, but I, I've really tried to make this point, and I feel like that no matter how many times I make the point, someone will say something which demonstrates that they're not getting the point. And it and and as soon as that starts happening, in my mind, everything starts unraveling. Because I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do? How many times do I have to go back over this? So let me explain. So here's Jude. He's the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ and called. So here at the beginning, we have the greeting, and we have the author identified, we have the recipients identified, and the recipients to this letter are those that are sanctified, they are preserved, and they are called, and then there's a blessing given. Then we kind of have the purpose of the book given. The purpose is, hey guys, I was going to write to you about the uh, you know, common salvation, but I couldn't do that because I need to do whatever I can to exhort you, to plead with you, to beg you to contend for the faith. Now, I want to make sure we, we just drive this point home. He's trying to get them to contend for the faith. He's not there warning them about danger. No, he's, he's, he's there trying to say, look, there is a problem. There is danger, but I'm not trying to warn you not to follow it. I am trying to beg you to contend with it. It's not written like, hey guys, there's these false teachers. Don't do it. You're going to be judged. You're going to be destroyed. No, it's like, hey guys, you're called, you're preserved. Okay. You, you're okay. But there's these false teachers. I need to challenge you to contend in in your spiritual security, I need you to exercise a contending attitude to contend with this false teaching. But he says, I'm going to exhort you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And this is the reason why, because men have crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord and our only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's writing to, to get these people who are preserved. They are called. They're sanctified. They have spiritual security. But there's these people who've crept in unaware, and they're turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. They're ungodly. They're denying God. I need you who's, who's safe and secure here in the pew to get up and contend with these men who have crept in unawares. You've got to contend. Now, how is he going to motivate them to contend? Well, he offers, he starts reminding them of things. Starting in verse four, or starting in verse five, I will therefore put 
you in remembrance. The you there is referring to the people he's trying to get to contend for the faith. So the purpose of the reminders is to motivate them to contend. The purpose of the reminders is not to say, hey, you better not follow those false teachers because if you do, you're going to be judged. No, it's trying to say, hey, these reminders are examples of people being judged for, in a sense, departing from something. And so he's trying to use these reminders to motivate them. Now, so many books and so many commentaries take the reminders almost as warnings. Hey, you better not follow those false teachers or you're going to be judged like Israel was when they came out of Egypt. Hey, you better not follow those false teachers or you're going to be like, uh, you're going to be judged like the angels who left their first estate. Hey, you better not follow those false teachers or you're going to be judged like Sodom and Gomorrah. And that isn't, I believe, a completely incorrect way of interpreting the book. But every time I seem to mention that, I'm getting this like, either, I don't know, there's just something not connecting. So then that causes me to go, okay, I got to go back over this. I got to go back over this. And then the more I go back over it, it, yeah, everything just spiraled out of control. Well, uh, we have in the past, I've already given an outline. Here was the outline I'd given everyone. We have the greeting of verses one through two. We have the purpose stated in verses three through four. We have the reminders in verses five, uh, six, seven, uh, nine. Let's see here. Uh, 11 and 14. Those are all reminders because it points to uh, past events. Then we have the description of false teachers, and we see that in verse 8. We see that in verse 10. We see that in verse, uh, uh, well, uh, well, not really 11. We see it in verse 12, and you go on. So I, I, I did, when I gave the outline, or at least the initial outline, I, I told everyone that sometimes in books, it goes very much in kind of like an order. But I don't think that's going to work in this book because I think we're going to have to group some ideas together by taking a verse here and then a verse there and bringing them together. Because to me, you've got, hey, I'm I'm giving you these reminders to motivate you. And then I'm going to give you the description of these false teachers. And that, that may be related to the reminders, but I'm going to do that now. I thought I thought we had already kind of came to some understanding of that, I thought. And one of the things I've wanted to do in Jude is I wanted to make it kind of a hermeneutical exercise, right? I wanted the people to be involved in trying to put together the outline. But I thought we had already kind of worked out the outline in, in verses 1 through 2, verses 3 through 4. And then I thought we'd kind of already worked out the basic concept with the reminders, or at least I thought we had already kind of come to some understanding. Now, this morning... We were going to come to this whole discussion about Michael the archangel. Now, verse 7 is Sodom and Gomorrah. There's that reminder, right? Then verse 8, it goes to something different. Likewise, these filthy, filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. That seems to be describing the false teacher. This is not a reminder. This is, not, hey, hey, I'm going to remind you about these things now look at these, these individuals. Then immediately he goes right back to, hey, Michael the archangel, which is a, something that has happened in the past. So I see that different. I see the description and the reminder. Now I knew it was going to cause a little bit of confusion, but I'd already clearly established this previously, 
right? Or at least I thought I had. At least I thought I had. But it didn't quite work out that way. Because then, then, then there was discussion, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Verse, verse, uh, verse 8 starts a new section. And verse 8 is the description. And, and the descriptions go from 8 to, um, I think, I can't remember, maybe down to 13. Uh, well, uh, well, at verse 15, we have reminders. Maybe it goes all the way to, I don't even remember, but it was like, hey, this is all a description. So then we were like, we had conflicting outlines being suggested in the church. Then there was this idea of trying to group the reminders with the descriptions and it was so weird because we'd already kind of worked through a, a, a large portion of the outline. And it's like we had now gone backwards and trying to redo the outline that I thought we had already had some kind of an agreement upon, which just once again demonstrates that you get five Christians in a room. <laughs> you can't agree. You can't agree. You can't even agree on an outline. If you can't just say, if you can't even agree on the outlining of a book, how in the world are you ever going to agree on the interpretation of a book? But once it once the the discussion started, I tried to entertain it at first. Like, okay, let's go with that idea. Okay, all right, let's go with that. And then I tried to challenge it a little bit. Well, okay, if this is a description, where is the description? Like, for example, when you read about Michael the archangel, how is that describing the false teachers? It doesn't describe the false teachers. It just it's a reminder of Michael the archangel, and this reminder. It's trying to show the people that are challenged to contend how to contend. So it doesn't make any sense to label that as a description of false teachers when it doesn't describe them. It's reminding them of what Michael the archangel did and did not do. So I was like, okay, this is getting like, how complicated are we going to make this outline? Like how, how convoluted are we going to make this? Can we just say, here's the reminders, here's the descriptions, Right. Or as I have reminders, descriptions and directions. Right. That's that's kind of the way I thought about it. But now I'm going to reconsider my entire outline. But it just by the end of it, it all fallen completely apart. So what do I do? Well, I've walked around the house moping. <laughs> I've walked around the house going, man, what went wrong? Man, what did I do wrong? Man, how did that happen? How, how did I lose complete control of the situation? And you know what? I don't know if I'm going to ever be able to figure out what I did wrong, how I did it wrong, but I know this. The best way to handle discouragement is to meet said discouragement with determination. Don't allow the discouragement to lead you to, a, to feeling defeated. Allow the discouragement to make you mad so that you get Okay, make sure I say this right. I think I said that incorrect. See, I'm going to make another mistake. Don't allow discouragement to lead to defeat. Let discouragement lead to determination. I think I said that the correct way, okay? Don't allow your discouragement to defeat you. Allow discouragement to make you more determined. So you have to meet the discouragement with determination, not being defeated, not depression, but determination. So you have to, you get discouraged, you get, you know, frustrated and you got to let that, that you got to meet, you got to let that lead to the determined spirit. You can't let the discouragement defeat you. You got to let the discouragement lead to a determined attitude. You got to, it's got to make you more determined 
Now, it doesn't always work that way. It can be anything. It can be school. It can be sports. It, it, it just, it's not going, it goes wrong. You, you make all kinds of mistakes or you fail or you, you, you don't catch the pass. You don't make the shot. You, whatever the case, you fell in martial arts. You fell the test, whatever the case may be. Guess what? You can't let that discouragement defeat you. You have to let it motivate you to get determined. So I went through a kind of a, a, a pity party and then I'm like, you know what? It's Sunday afternoon. I could just sit back and I could relax. I could let my voice, you know, uh, rest rest a little bit because you can hear it struggling a little bit. I could just get a little bit of rest, but you know what? I'm not going to let this discouragement defeat me. I'm going to get determined and I'm going to walk right back up those stairs. I'm going to turn on the microphone and I'm going to try to produce something meaningful on the book of Jude because everyone in the church, well, they deserve something better than they got. And everyone listening online deserves something better than God. So the only thing I could think I, to do was, you know what? I'll go back to how this whole Jude series started. Now, most of the people in the church don't know this. I think I talked about it on the podcast. But it all started because one night, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, I was listening to sermons on the Sermons 2.0 app and that's in my uh, feed, you know, the ones, the different ones I follow. And something came up from, um, is it Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky? I think it's Southern Seminary. From a seminary, because I love to listen to things from seminaries. And they were doing a mini-series on the book of, drumroll please, Jude. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. And then I'd seen some other sermons on Jude. And I'm like, you know, if everyone's talking about Jude, well, I'm, don't leave me out. We'll do a study on Jude, right? So, and I knew at some point I would probably review some of those sermons. So, you know what? I thought, you know, everything has gone wrong this morning. My preaching, my, I don't even know if my, I'm about ready to throw out my entire outline and start over because now I don't even know if I can trust my own outline, Okay, but uh, I'm, I, I decided, you know what, we'll just go back, grab, I think this is sermon one from that series, and we'll just review it. Maybe they'll give an outline that will, that will be better. Maybe they will explain that my approach to the book is completely wrong. Maybe they will be able to convince me that, hey, this is not written to get people to contend for the faith. This is warning the people in the church, beware of false teachers. I think that's incorrect, but I'm willing to hear any perspective right now. So I thought we would spend maybe 40 minutes, 45 minutes. We'll try to make take this up to an hour and see if we can uh, gain something from this, right? Something maybe positive. I can, I can, out of my discouragement, out of my defeat, maybe I can uh, let my determination lead to something productive. Maybe I can try to make up for it. You don't really get a do-over, do you? There aren't do-overs, right? There's no doing over what I did this morning because what happened happened. I can't fix it, right? That's one of the, sometimes I think that's, that's one of the frustrating things being a pastor. When the sermon goes wrong, most of the people who leave, they just go home and like, whatever, okay, that, that wasn't a good sermon, whatever. And then by one or two o'clock in the afternoon, they're taking a nap, they're eating. They, they've already forgotten about the sermon, but it's the pastor that at 2, 2.35 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon, I'm still obsessing over the sermon and how everything went wrong. And I'll be obsessing over it at one o'clock in the morning. I'll be, I probably won't be able to sleep because I wasted an hour of everyone's time. An hour of my life I can never get back. An hour of life that should have been dedicated to a correct teaching of God's word went wrong. And I can't make up for that. 
I can't, I'm so obsessed about time as it is. I hate wasting one second of time. And I wasted an entire hour where I did not handle the word of God correctly. I don't know how I lost control of it, but I did. So I'm going to try to not waste this hour where I could just be doing nothing. But instead of doing nothing, I'm going to let that discouragement, that defeat lead to a determination, and I'm going to be determined to get something out of this. Now, I'm hoping it goes well. I, I'm, it's been a long time since I've heard this. I don't even remember if I listened to everything because typically when I start, I'm like, oh, that's good. Let's save that and we'll review it together. But so I don't remember where this is going. I don't know what they're going to do, but I figured let's see how they handled Jude. I'm hoping this is the introduction. I'm hoping. If it's not, I'm going to be very frustrated, but I'm hoping this is the introductory message. They have it labeled as Jude 1 through 2. Usually you have Jude introduction, then you have Jude 1 through 2. Typically is how you work it because your introductory gives the background, but they may combine both of them in one message. But this is again from, uh, I believe, Southern Seminary, Dr. Albert Moeller preaching at the seminary. And uh, well, let's see what we can learn. See if this makes well, if I can just bring something positive out of a negative, I can bring uh, some uh, a determined success out of a discouraging and defeated, defeating morning. A morning where I was defeated by my own preaching. I'm going to be defeated by my own talking is what's going to happen. Here we go. It is a good thing for us to be together for any chapel service. A good thing to be able to sing songs like we have just been singing. So many things going on in the world. Imagine trying to maintain a focus like we are, we are disciplined to do on this campus. Imagine coming into a service like this, but imagine it not being in Louisville, Kentucky, but in Kiev, in Ukraine. You could transplant this institution any number of other places on earth, and you could recognize that there would be issues and events uh, impinging upon us. We could be a seminary by a bridge connecting the United States and Canada, blocked by trucks from uh, c- coming into the worship service. We could be just about anywhere, but by God's grace and mercy, you look at all the headline news and you recognize all that could be a distraction to gathering together for Christian worship, for that matter, pursuing Christian higher education, theological education. But let's be honest, there are plenty of distractions here. There are plenty of other places everyone could be. There are plenty of other occasions and gatherings to which anyone might go. The fact is that in life, worship is always, the gathering of God's people is always a refuge from distraction. Interesting approach. Um, He starts his message on Jude by discussing the fact that there are distractions in life and that worship is always a refuge from distraction. That, that's, a, that's a beautiful thought. Now, again, I, I've said I do the same thing. Everyone does it, uh, that sometimes when you're preaching, you have this thought and you want to connect it to your sermon. Does this connect with Jude? Is he going to make it connect? Or is it just his introduction? I don't know. We'll see. Um, but it's an interesting approach. I thought he was going to say, hey, if you look at the news, there's some serious messed up stuff in the church. 
And that is why we're going to be studying the book of Jude today. I thought maybe that's the direction it was going to go, but let's see. It's not a flight from reality, however. We're coming together because that's what Christians do. We're together today because this, this is what this learning community does. God's people come together regularly, hungrily for the Word of God. And to the Word of God we turn. But we do so recognizing that what we are doing right now is subjecting ourselves as eagerly as possible to the onslaught of the Word of God. We are coming into this place in order to dare, by God's grace, and by his love to hear him speak. God speak. Not a prime minister, not a president. God. The audacity of that goes beyond what many people plan to entertain as even a thought. It's, uh, it's something from which demons and others would flee. So what brings us together? A short book, to be sure. Still kind of an interesting approach. Uh, 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 interesting approach to Jude. So, uh, but again, uh, sometimes you step into the pulpit and you have, you have so many different things you want to discuss. And I, again, this may, he may, he, he may transition. Like you see this, he's three minutes in. So this is the introduction and then typically you have to build that bridge so that you get from your introduction into your main point, right? So what is that, what's going to be that transitional bridge there? Or is it just going to be like, okay, hey, we're going to talk, I just want to talk about distractions and worship and hearing from God and then boom, right? It, it's perfectly okay. I'm just pointing out, I'm, that my mind, I'm like, okay, Jude, 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 because that's all I want to talk about today is Jude because of how bad my preaching went this morning. So I, I just, I want to get to Jude. I want to get to Jude. So maybe that I'm a little impatient. Here we go. The book of Jude. I know you can find it. Just before the final book of scripture, the book of Revelation, the letter of Jude. It's in a series of short letters, particularly 2 John, 3 John, and Jude. Following the very familiar pattern of letters from the first century and from the ancient world, we recognize the letter form. We're going to be taking a closer look at every single word of this very short letter, often referred to as an epistle. I want to tell you why all my life, my Christian life, I have been drawn again and again to this letter. And why now? Hear the word of the Lord. The letter of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they have walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are blemishes on your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shape, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now, that's what I should have done for Sunday school. I should have just read it, said amen, closed my Bible, and just said, that's the end of Sunday school. Spend the next little bit of time talking to one another, uh, just just have a time of discussion, just whatever you want to do, and then we will start at 11-something for the morning worship. That would have been a far more productive Sunday school hour, but I did not do that. I got us back into our outlining of the book because I thought it as a hermeneutical exercise, I thought, what a great, 
What a great book to use for a hermeneutical exercise. It's so short. We can work. We can be able to figure out an outline on this that everyone can agree on. This should, this should be simple. This should be a great exercise, right? Because you can't always do that. You can't say, hey, guys, let's all work together to come up with a outline for Exodus or for Matthew. Those are large books that require lots of work and time because typically to outline, you got to read the book over and over and over and over and over. And look, you can't. You can't outline until you've read the book five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. I mean, that's just basic. That's just how you've got to read it over and over and over and over and over and over and over, right? So I figured like, okay, everyone have been, you know, they can read this book, you know, within the first week, they can read it five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times within the first week, right? So my thought thinking is we've already, we've, we've in a sense, we've already started working on the outline. So I thought that, you know, we didn't, all I needed to demonstrate this morning was verse eight. You see why we have to kind of jump around? Because verse eight is not a reminder. It's a description. Clearly, in verse six, he uh, uh, in verse five, he says, I'm going to put you in remembrance. In fact, he comes right back to that. Um, and verse, let's see, where is it? Getting close to the end, verse 17. But beloved, remember ye the words I was spoken. The, the way he is going to get them to contend for the faith is through remembrance. He's going to use remembrance to move them to become contenders. In the midst of the reminders, he describes the condition and the character of and the attributes of the false teachers. I separate them. Right? Now, I'm not saying that they're not linked together in the study of the book, but in the outlining of the book, it's easier to clearly see the structure by separating them. But, um, well, that all fell apart. Now, I'm, I'm curious to see if he offers an outline of the book. Here we go. The book of Jude. The letter of Jude. One of the 66 books of Scripture and one of the shortest of those books in a series here at the end of the New Testament, the close of the canon, a very short books before the book of Revelation. Three very short letters. Two from John, following a longer letter from John, and then this little letter from Jude. As we shall see, it's an unusual letter. Now, it follows the the form of an epistle in the New Testament, you'll recognize it with the greeting in the beginning, the blessing at the end. It, it follows the same shape. But there are, there are matters addressed in the book of Jude that appear nowhere else in the New Testament with references to Jewish tradition even outside the Old Testament. Yeah, the book has some crazy things in it. It does, it does. And that's why I think... Well, because it deals with some crazy things, that's why I think you have to separate the things out. The crazy things are the reminders. I am going to remind you about this. And you're like, wait, what are you? Michael, the archangel did what? Wait, you're going to wait. Enoch said what? Like, I, I think you for study purposes, I've got to place this in separate categories because they're so distinct because the reminders are there to motivate from being just a church member to a contender for the faith. It is through the, the reminders is the way they are doing that. So I don't know. I, I'm, you see, I'm still committed to the reminder 
concept in my outline. I'm still committed to that. All right, let, let's see what they do. This is the last book before the book of Revelation, and we often speak of the book of Revelation as, as of course, marked by apocalyptic passages. But there are apocalyptic references in the letter of Jude. We're going to turn to the letter of Jude, Lord willing, five different services and five different occasions, five different messages in the course of this semester. Let me just tell you up front. I can give you a view of how we are going to be looking at the book of Jude. Today, just the first two verses. Next week, only the third verse. And you say, it doesn't sound like five, sounds like 50. (laughs) But the first message, just the first two verses. The second message, verse 3. The third message, verses 4 through 16. Then 17 through 23. And then the closing doxology, the benediction at the end. Verses 24 and 25. Now it looks like he's going to break it down. Verse 1 and 2, verse 3, and then verses 4 through 16, he's going to group all of that together. And I understand that's the common way of breaking it down, grouping all of that together. My contention is no. My contention is 4 through 16 can't just be grouped together. It needs to be separated because two different things are happening. Reminders and descriptions. The reminders is what's to motivate them to contend. The descriptions is to say this is what these false teachers are like. And it may be connected that what they are like are connected to the reminders. I'm not denying that. But for outlining purposes, I thought it would be more important to separate them. But as you just heard, at least the way the preaching of of it, that's how they're going going to break it down. In fact, if we were just, I'm, I'm just curious. I'm just curious. I don't know if this will work. Let me just do this. Right. I'm just I, I could be completely wrong here. All right. I'm going to go here. How others break it down. OK, if I just go online and look for outlines. All right. Here's what we have. We have uh, the let's see here. Outline greetings, purpose. Then they have uh God's judgment and times past. Okay, so this is how this outline works. Greetings, verses 1 through 2. Purpose, verses 3 through 4. God's judgment in the past, 5 through 7. Character and doom of false teachers, 8 through 19. Exhortations to build their faith, 20 through 23. Then doxology. So instead, what they do is, instead of grouping it from verse 5 to 16, they go from 5, they just only go 5 to 7, and that's God's judgment in the past. Then they use 8 to 19 to say, this is the description of the false teachers. 8 through 19 is the description of the false teachers. But look at what I have a problem with. 8 through 19 is the description of the false teachers, right? They see 8 through, yeah, 8 through 19 is the description of the false teachers. See, see where I have problems with this. First, verse 9, Michael the archangel, 
When contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. There's no description of any false teacher there. That's a reminder of a past event. Now, you could say verse 11 is, because woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, greedily after the error of Balaam, um, and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. Okay, I understand that that is the description, but it is also a reminder. So I understand verse 11 is one where you could have a little bit of difficulty. I understand that. Then it goes back, but then look at verse uh, 14. Enoch, also the seventh from Adam, prophesied of thee, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. That's not a description of false teachers. That's a reminder, okay? Then in verse 17, but beloved, remember ye the words which are spoken. This outline says that verse, verse 17, needs to be in the outline calling the character of false teachers. That's not giving me the character of false teachers. That's giving me a reminder. Okay? I, I don't understand what is so complicated about this. But uh, so even there, that outline, I, I, I don't, I don't get the out, I don't get the outline, I don't get the out. It doesn't make any. You're grouping passages together that aren't is not doing what you say they're doing. If you say, hey, these verses describe false teachers, then every one of those verses has to describe the false teacher. It has to give me their character. You can't have a verse that says, beloved. Okay, that's not the false teachers. Remember the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is not a description. When I read, hey, Michael the archangel did this, that's not a description. Those are reminders. I don't understand. What what if I see I, I don't understand why nobody else understands, okay? But he even here, the first outline I find but goes does what everyone else wants to do. It wants to group everything together, puts these things together. You can't put things together that are not the same. I can't put a reminder together with a description because a reminder is different than a description. A reminder is saying, look back. The description is saying, look in the present. They're different. (laughs) That doesn't mean in the teaching of the description, I don't link it back to the reminder. It means in the outline, I separate them so that I can clearly observe what's in the text because the reminders have a specific purpose to motivate the people to contend. All right, let's continue. The book of Jude has framed so much of my theological imagination all of my Christian life, or at least uh, my, my adult Christian life, coming to terms with the book of Jude. The book of Jude, in a very, very important way, a way that centered my life, settled for me the question as to whether the Christian faith is one thing or many things. In a world in which there are many denominations, there are many different theological systems, there are many different renderings of Christianity, along comes Jude to speak of the faith once delivered to the saints. And there are many different outlines of the same book. <laughs> there, there are many different outlines 
of the same book, okay? What I may do is ask every listener to create their outline of Jude. I want every listener to create their outline. If you want to participate and send it to me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, or post it in the Discord channel. And this is what I want you to do, though. Here's the thing. And this is where I think my frustration is. If you haven't read the book over and over and over and over and over and over, you can't sit there and outline it. Like you can't just do it. Okay, I'm going to just start outlining it. No, you've got to read it because here's what how I created my outline. I kept reading and reading and going, well, if I group these together, well, that's weird, right? Because if I group, just stay with me. Verse five, I will put you in remembrance. Verse 17, but beloved, remember. Now, that would, there's a tendency to go, well, then everything from 5 to 17 is all remembrance, right? To remind, reminders, right? To put them in remembrance. The only problem is when I look through 5 through 16 and I read it over and over and over and over, I'm like, well, wait, that's not a reminder. No, no, he's, he reminded him here. Now he's describing the false teachers in the present. I can't call that a reminder. A remi- I'm going to look this up. I'm going to look it up. All right. I'm going to look this up. Okay. Reminder definition. A reminder. A thing that causes someone to remember something. Right? So in other words, the verse has to be reminding them of something. All right? A description is defined as a description is defined as uh let's see. If I can spell right. A description is defined as a spoken or written uh, representation or account of a person, object, or event. Okay, so you're describing an account or a person or an event. Well, he's reminded them of things in the past, and he's describing the people in the present. It's, it's completely separated. One is looking back. One is looking to the present. They're separated by their, their tense. They're separated by the purpose everything. So it's just funny, like, hey, there's all of these different kinds of, of, of things within Christianity. Yeah, and it's, there's all these different kinds of outlines as well. Let's see, I, I'm hoping he offers some kind of outline. Maybe he's not going to do so. Definite articles and singularity. You also have the same reference coming later, your most holy faith. Christianity is one thing. There is one gospel. There is one authentic, legitimate Christianity. Christianity is not plural. Christianity is singular. Now, there are denominations and there there are churches, but they're not Christianities. There is just one Christianity, and one of our responsibilities is to understand very clearly what Christianity is, what is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But that's verse 3. 
An awful lot of my attention to the book of Jude, my entire life has been directed to, to verse 3 and to the context of verse 3 because one of the challenges I have faced throughout my entire life has been addressing that question as whether Christianity is one or many. How, how do we understand this? When we talk about Southern Seminary, we talk about Southern Baptists, we talk about, say, Baptists, or we talk about Protestants or Evangelicals, or, are we talking about a Christianity among other Christianities, or are we talking about our very best, most faithful, most ardent attempt by God's grace to stand upon and to believe within the faith once for all delivered to the saints? But you're asking yourself, you're already in verse 3, you said you were only going to address verses one and two. And I want us to look at verses one and two, and we're going to hold the, uh, the, the blessed explosive power of understanding the singularity of Christianity. That will be for the next message. Because before that come these first two verses, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. When we think of the, the, the structure of, a, of epistles of letters, especially from the ancient world, and isn't it odd? I mean, we, we, we talk about this if, as if it makes sense, but you look at the people who you just run up against at uh, any event in the community outside a church, you just imagine that you're, you're in a different kind of school setting or you're in a different cultural setting and, or you're at the mall or you're at an athletic event, guess what? You can pretty much count on the fact that there would be one and only one reason why anyone, including yourself, gathered in that place in the year of our Lord, 2022, would have any confrontation whatsoever with, for example, ancient Hebrew prophets or epistles written by apostles in the first century. Now, just think for a moment about how odd that is. I mean, you think about going to an athletic event, you're, you're in the stands and... Uh, uh, as we so often have the common experience of going to athletic events and experiencing the thrill and, and all the excitement and you're looking around and hear all these people and obviously I actually don't go to many. And honest, maybe exceedingly rare. But I do know that other people do. And I think it's safe to say that other than the fact that we confront, say, Hebrew prophets and New Testament apostles in the Scripture, that would be far beyond even the imagination of the people who would be gathered in a contemporary American context in the year 2022. But that, that's actually what we're doing. We, it is the epistles to which we turn. It is this letter to which we turn. And it makes sense to us. And I just want to remind us that it makes sense to us because of the familiarity of Scripture and because we know this is the divinely inspired and perfect Word of God, but it is a letter written in times of old. We're talking about a letter that is, by any reckoning, nearly 2,000 years old. 
The letter form begins in the ancient world and in the Roman tradition particularly with the identification of the writer of the letter, which, by the way, is quite convenient. So, in one sense, if you're holding the letter, the letter's to you. The question is, who wrote it? Who sent it? Who initiated it? Here it is, Jude. We refer to this epistle as the letter of Jude, right before the book of Revelation. But who is Jude? Common name in the first century. Common enough that this has to be a specific Jude. And, and as Jude initiates the letter, he does so with two different references concerning himself. After naming himself, he identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Well, the first we understand immediately, a servant of Jesus Christ. Except something does stand out as we think about other New Testament letters because we will think of other letters in which the apostle Paul will be the author and he will write identifying himself as Paul and then he will say an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not uncommon. Jude does not identify himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's no doubt this belongs to apostolic Christianity. That's why so early on this, this, this book was recognized as included within what we would call the New Testament canon. We would refer to this rightly as an apostolic writing. But Jude does not identify himself as an apostle, not because he necessarily was not an apostle, but because he simply identifies himself as a servant Now, you can address this homiletically very fast. I've heard it done with people simply saying, number one, this, this refers to the modesty of Jude, and, and that there's good evidence that this might well refer to something we would call the modesty of Jude. And there are others who would say, well, it's, it's because servant of Jesus Christ is an even higher title, an even higher category than apostle. But... Uh, as true as that is, in some sense, it's important for Paul to invoke his apostolic identity because it's important that the recipients of that letter then and now understand that it is an apostle of Jesus Christ who is indeed an apostle, as Paul says, not by my own choosing, but by the appointment of Christ now, this is interesting. I don't know. I did not draw. My, I did not point this out or spend time saying he. Why doesn't he address himself as an apostle? It's a very interesting question, and I'm glad that he's in, he's at least addressing it and bringing it up. I did not. I was more focused on the outline of the book, as you've heard me already mention a number of times here. I've spent so much time focused on the outlining, and the reason I did is the more I read the book. And the more of outlines I looked at, I found myself exceedingly frustrated that the outlines did not correctly observe what's in those sections because they, can, they had things in those sections that did not actually do what they labeled the section to be doing. In other words, if you say, this is a description of false teachers, and then I read a verse that says, 
<laughs> but beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken. That's not a description of a false teacher. And to, cl- to place that verse in that section, it's not. I'm not saying he's doing that. I'm saying that's the thing that preoccupied my mind. He, interesting enough, is focusing on, well, it doesn't say apostle. That's a good question. I didn't even think about it. I don't know. I don't know if we can come up with a good answer, but it is a good question. Looking at this, we recognize that Jude is identifying himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. And we need to take that with its full power and recognize that that is how Jude wants to be understood as we seek to understand this letter. What do we think about Jude? It's important to us to recognize the, the divine and human authorship of Scripture. In, in God's sovereignty, he chose Jude. He created Jude. He brought into Jude's life and experience everything necessary for the background and for the equipment to write this letter, including the life situation of Jude, and then the Holy Spirit, as Peter would say, moved Jude along, carried him along in writing exactly what the Holy Spirit intended. This is interesting because you would think if he, hey, I'm trying to exhort you to contend for the faith, you'd think in some ways it would have been better to say, Jude, an apostle, I have apostolic authority. You need to contend for the faith. That's the words of an apostle. But he doesn't seem to do that. He he says, I'm a servant. I'm the brother of James and beloved. Like, hey, I I was going to write to you and now I'm I'm exhorting you. Instead, Instead of coming at it from like an authoritative position, it's almost like, hey, I'm a servant like the rest of you. And I'm saying, hey, guys, you need to contend for the faith. Almost like instead of coming at it from an authoritative perspective, he comes at it from a more encouraging perspective. Maybe, maybe, does that change the way you read it? Does that change the tone that you you hear in your mind when you read it? I don't know. Should we Should we allow that to impact the way we read it? I don't know. He's a servant of Jesus Christ. That, that's an inviting identification for who among us, who among us is not rightly understood as a servant of Jesus Christ. But then he says, brother of James. So so now we actually do know who Jude is. We believe, based upon just that reference right here, that Jude is one of the four half-brothers of Jesus, one of the four sons born to Mary and Joseph subsequent to the birth of Jesus. Now, I I didn't see any particular shockwave go through the congregation. I didn't hear any gasps. But for a, a great many centuries of the Christian experience... Interpreters tried to find some other way to say who Jude might be. That was especially true, actually, in in pre-Reformation and post-Reformation developments going all the way up into the 19th and 20th centuries in Catholic thought. 
Jude identifies himself as a brother of James. So we need to work backwards. James. A reference merely to James, to the name James, could mean only one James. And that is James, we know, the great apostolic leader of Christianity in Jerusalem. The, the, the great apostle whose work we well know, whose writing in terms of his own letter we have. This is James. To say James was to utter the apostolic authority of the great leader of Christianity in Jerusalem in those crucial early years of the Christian church. There in the very place where Christ had been crucified and raised from the dead. James is referred to very clearly and even deferred to because he's the brother of Jesus. But remember the, the, the flow of New Testament revelation. James was not an early believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. As a, as a matter of fact, you look at a passage like 1 Corinthians 15 where you have the, the, the risen Christ appearing. And, and, of course, Paul will eventually put himself at the end of that line. And finally, to me, but he appeared to James. And, and so we, we have internal evidence as well as external attestation to the fact that these brothers of Christ who were his half-brothers because they were the sons of Mary and Joseph, they became leaders in the Christian church. James in particular. James becomes definitional for Christianity in Jerusalem. In so many ways, you could simply say that by the time you reach the early New Testamental time, figures such as James and John and Peter and Paul were understood as the pillars of the church, even as the, the prophets and the apostles were the foundation. This is James. This is the brother of James. Now, in identifying himself as the brother of James, he identifies himself as the half-brother of Christ. But he doesn't begin with that. If there is a sign of modesty in this opening to the book of Jude, it is in the fact that Jude does not identify himself by his relationship, first of all, to Christ as any sense of honor or privilege or authority but rather to James. Now, the Catholic tradition denies that either James or Jude or any other could be actually the half-brother of Jesus. The argument came fairly early in Christianity, even in some of the, the church fathers, that Mary must have been. There's no New Testament evidence, but simply must have been perpetually a virgin. That is that she and Joseph never had the experience of the conjugal union of husband and wife. Clement of Alexandria came back and said, by logical inference, as if this came to him in the middle of the night, that meant not only the perpetual virginity of Mary, but the perpetual virginity and continence of Joseph. But the fact is, even as you look at the Gospels, the fact is that Mary and Joseph did not come together and know each other in the conjugal union until such time that Christ had been delivered. There is no theological 
necessity for anything like the perpetual virginity of Mary. There is no biblical foundation for anything like the perpetual virginity of Mary. There is no doctrinal utility to anything like the claim of the perpetual virginity of Mary. It is instead an invitation to focus on Mary in a way that the New Testament steadfastly resists. So we should take this just as it comes to us. That the one who's written this letter by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is a servant of Jesus Christ who is none other than his half-brother born of the same womb as Jesus, born of the same womb as James. I spent that time on verse 1 just to say, this is explosive. It, it, It isn't to us because of the ring of the familiar but this is explosive. If you're in the early church and you're receiving a letter, and, and this letter is coming with some authority, is it, is it coming from, from a, a, a deacon? Is it coming from an, an elder? Is it, is it coming from a friend? Is it coming from a speculator? Is it coming from an encourager? Or is it coming from an apostle? Or is it coming from the brother of James? Knowing what that means. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father. Okay, we'll stop there. I think it's interesting, and I'm glad he spent some time doing that. Uh, really some good stuff right there. That's why I listen. That's why I subscribe to them, uh, to Southern Seminary, because I usually hear good stuff. So that's one of the reasons and I think I've told other people to subscribe to every seminary you can find on Sermons 2.0 app. You should subscribe to all of them. But I think it's interesting because it's making me think, how should the book be read? He doesn't come at them in a very authoritative way. He comes in a very humble way. Hey, guys, uh, I'm a servant. I'm the brother of James. Now, that, 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 that still is some modesty there because he could say I'm the half-brother of Jesus. But what I think is interesting is, hey, I, I gave diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, the salvation that we all have. He, it, he doesn't come at it from an authoritative approach. Very much from like, hey, I'm, just, I'm, I'm a servant just like you, and, we, and you guys, we, you've got to contend for the faith. Almost in an encouraging way, not an authoritative way. Maybe... That's a wrong, but I think there's something to that based on the information we just heard, which was well presented. Now, what he's going to do here is spend some time, well, how the, how the recipients of the letter are described, sanctified, preserved, uh, and called. That, those are very important terms, but it demonstrates the spiritual security of these people. And from that security, they must be now motivated to contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints. What we're going to do is I'm going to take a break. We're going to come back and we're going to skip everything else. And we're going to see what he does with verse five, which is I'm going to put you in remembrance. And I'm going to see how he outlines the remembrance section and how he interprets it. Because, well, that's where everything went wrong for us. But uh, again, we, we, he doesn't give an, it's interesting, he doesn't give an outline. Uh, he kind of give a hint of an outline. And if he goes with his hint, five through, it looks like 16, he's going to, he's going to put as, I don't know what he's going to call it. But just please note that if you do that, verse 17, 
The remembrance is, it's just five is the remembrance. 17 is the remembrance. And if you put five to 17, the remembrance, well, you've got things in five to 17 that are not reminders. They are descriptions. You got to separate them. And again, my outline came from spending hours reading the book and looking at every outline I could find going, how can you call? We, I just demonstrated that. I took Google, looked up an outline. They're like, hey, this is a describer of false teachers. And they included verse 17 in it. Verse 17 is not a description of a false teacher. Verse 9 is not a description of a false teacher. So why could you call that? That's not observation. Okay? That's not observation. Uh, the observation is realizing there's a distinction between a reminder and a description. <laughs> there is. So hopefully my discouragement was met with determination, and hopefully that has been somewhat productive for this hour and eight minutes. But just stay with me. I'll be back in about five to ten minutes because we're going to see what they do with verse five. All right. Thanks for listening. It, if this was not helpful to you, I understand that right? Probably wasn't, but it's, I'm just having my own counseling session with myself. So if you're tuning in, great. If it doesn't help you, I apologize, but I'm hoping it helps me because here in a couple of hours, I've got to be standing back behind the very same pulpit where everything went wrong this morning and try to do so with some level of confidence. When it goes wrong, you lose that confidence and then you're kind of passive and you're scared and, and you're nervous and you don't want to do anything because you're like, I don't want to go through that again. But hopefully it will go well this evening. But maybe we can, I'm just curious to see what he does, how he groups this section together. Because I'm going to be like, if you're going to call it reminders, not all of these are reminders. If you're going to call it descript descriptions, not all of these are descriptions. So why are you grouping them together? The quality of your observation determines the quality of your interpretation. That's why I thought Jude would be such a great book to have a hermeneutical exercise for everyone in my church. And it turned into, well, I don't know what it turned into, but all I can do is try to put the pieces back together. So we're going to do that in just a couple of minutes. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll be back on the air soon. God bless.